It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. It was Wednesday, the 23rd of October, 2002. In the theater on Dubrovka Street in Moscow, Hundreds of people had gathered for a sold-out performance of Russia's first Broadway-style musical called Nordost. Shortly after 9 p.m., as the audience was settling in for the second act, a group of armed men and women entered the building and fired into the air. The men were wearing combat fatigues and balaclavas, while the women were dressed in black, with their faces covered. Some of them were wearing suicide belts. People in the audience initially thought it was part of the show, but it soon became clear that it wasn't. The terrorists held hostage over 900 audience members, cast and crew. They had one demand, that Vladimir Putin stop the war in Chechnya and pull out Russian troops. The Kremlin refused to negotiate, and the FSB hatched a plan to eliminate the terrorists. On the third day of the siege, special forces filled the auditorium with a mysterious gas. Evidence has since come to light suggesting that it contained carfentanil, an opioid 10,000 times more powerful than morphine. And while commanders stormed the theater wearing gas masks and protective gear, little thought was given to the safety of the hundreds of civilians inside. To the security services, these people were collateral damage. Ambulances took an hour and a half to reach the scene because the roads were not cleared. Doctors were never told about the nature of the gas, and by the time they found the antidote, for many it was too late. At least 130 hostages died during or shortly after the raid. And the special forces executed all of the hostage takers as they lay unconscious. We managed to do the near impossible, Putin said after the theater siege. Save the lives of hundreds of people. The FSB released a video of the dead terrorists. It showed their disfigured faces. We proved it's impossible to bring Russia to its knees, Putin said. In the aftermath of the siege, a journalist, Anna Politkovskaya, uncovered allegations that Russian intelligence services knew about the planned attack. Within a few years, the key sources for her story were all dead. And on the 7th of October 2006, Putin's birthday, Politkovska herself was gunned down as she entered her home. The Nordost siege was never properly investigated. 
and it's a historic moment that the Kremlin would prefer people not to remember. But for most of us living and reporting in Russia, the questions surrounding the siege and all of those deaths were too disturbing to engage with anyway. Because if the state was complicit in the killing of its own innocent people, nothing else, economic growth, politics, entertainment, made any sense at all. But in spite of the lingering questions and the repressed memories, one thing has always been indisputable. For Russia's president, the show of strength was more important than saving innocent lives. He reversed the single most important change brought about by Mikhail Gorbachev, that in modern Russia, human life and dignity would take priority over the prestige of the state. There, everything starts with Putin and his politics. So now, it's for me, it's clear. And he understood, oh, okay, it's no reaction from the society. And it wasn't, really. I was sitting home. I wasn't fighting, I wasn't screaming. I'm Arkady Ostrovsky, from The Economist. This is Next Year in Moscow. Episode 4. Hostages. Riga, the capital of Latvia. Church bells chime through cobblestone squares. Ukrainian flags hang from elegant Belle Epoque apartment blocks. This country borders Russia and it was once occupied by the Soviet Union. So the war in Ukraine is front of mind here. And we're just walking through a little park with the children's drawings that have been displayed on the um, different parts of Riga and, and here is one of them. And there is a drawing here, one by Ilaria, seven years old from Zaporizhia, says, I want peace. I want my family to smile like before. I want to feel the safe sky and bright warm sun over my head. I'm here to meet someone who ties our story together. Her life has made her a witness to the key events, and her work has brought her into contact with the protagonists. She's made her own compromises and now has to live with them. She once endorsed Vladimir Putin for the presidency and was insistently courted by the Kremlin, who saw her as a valuable asset. She is not a writer or politician or a victim. She is an actress. In fact, one of Russia's most famous and loved ones, Chulpan Khamatova. I have so many languages right now in my... <laughs> because I'm, I'm learning Latvian right now. Once a recipient of prizes from the Russian state, she is now in exile here in Riga attempting to rebuild her career away from her audiences, her stage partners, her language. She came here soon after the war began, because keeping quiet about the war in Ukraine for the sake of her career in Russia was a compromise she felt she couldn't make. 
I mean, for me, uh, for my character, <clears throat> for my um, temperament, I don't know, it's just impossible to be in silence. I can say that I will speak loud, doesn't matter where. She couldn't imagine walking on stage in Russia, enjoying a successful career, in light of what had happened. I mean, a lot of people in Ukraine sitting uh, at bomb shelters and, and I'm staying on the stage with a light and applause and all this thing. For me, it was unreasonable. Alvis Hermanis, the director who invited her to Riga, has described Hamatova as a modern-day Malen Dietrich. Dietrich was a much-loved German actress who was courted by the Nazis before fleeing to America in the late 1930s, where she joined the Allies and became a prominent anti-fascist voice. Like her, Hamatova has abandoned the country of her birth and now speaks out against a terrible war. She is in a play here in Riga, a one-woman show called Postscriptum, at the end of which the audience is asked not to applaud. The main character is a woman called Nadia, who is based on an actual hostage from the Nordos theatre siege. She lost her husband and son during the so-called rescue operation. The play is drawn from the work of the slain journalist Anna Politkovskaya, and it ends with a sobering reflection. It's been 20 years. It's as if it were yesterday. We asked Chilpan to read it for us in English. I would like, for example, to have the culprits named. And the main one among them is the state, not the Chechens. For me, the Chechens are in the tenth place. The one who is guilty is the one who made the decision about gas. Putin. Of course. I'd very much like to meet him and say, tell me, if your two daughters were in the theater that night watching a play, would you have done it? Would you have used the gas? Chulpan's character Nadia is a schoolteacher. One of his students writes an essay on a chapter from Fyodor Dostoevsky's most desolate novel called Demons. That chapter had been censored in Dostoevsky's lifetime. It tells the story of a sinner, Nikolai Stavrogin, who comes to a monk to confess a hideous crime, raping a young girl and driving her to suicide. But it soon becomes clear to the monk that the sinner feels no remorse. The clergyman is horrified by this discovery. Stavrogin, he predicts, will commit a new and even more terrible crime, only to avoid facing the previous one. This idea about the progression of crime explains why the program of the production about Nordost is illustrated with photographs of another theatre, one in the Ukrainian city of Mariupol. In the early days of the war, civilians took shelter there. Outside, they wrote Deti, Russian for children, in huge chalk letters. 
On March 16, 2022, Russians bombed it anyway. It's estimated that nearly 600 people were killed. You met Putin, haven't you? A lot of times, yes. Did you think he was capable of this? Yeah. In 2006, Chilpanko founded a charity, Padari Zizn, Gift of Life, to provide care to children with cancer. At a prize-giving reception in April of that year, she managed to get Putin's attention and to grab a quiet moment with him after the official photos. She asked him to help with the construction of a new hospital, whose funding had just mysteriously disappeared from the state budget. He listened attentively to what she said and offered to help. When he wants to be, Russia's president can be a disarmingly charming person. He was always nice, very nice, very polite, very, uh, I can say, so with humor. I never met actually Putin one-to-one. People who have met him saying he, he is very good at mirroring. You talk to him, he actually says he's on your wave. Did you feel that? Yeah, extremely like this. Yeah, that was always the feeling that... It's just one thing in the world um, what interested him. It's your problem. That, that was the feeling, that he wants to help you without question. And he think he thought just about how to help Chulpan and the clinic and the doctors and the children. But altruism doesn't feature in Putin's world. Nothing is done for nothing. Every transaction has a price, and every favor can be called in. It's the same code that underpins the mafia and the KGB. Chulpan needed help with the hospital. Putin needed her fame. So they entered into a dance. In 2012, Putin was planning his return to the presidency. On Balotnaya Square in Moscow, Chulpan's friends gathered to protest against him and ask her to join in. At the same time, she got a call that she had been dreading. It was from the Kremlin. This person, he, he just uh, told me, uh, we helped you, now the time to help us. And that's all. One of Putin's representatives asked if she would record a 30-second campaign video endorsing him. What did you think at that moment? Was that a kind of a Faust, uh, you know, Faustian Fuck. deal? I mean... Fuck? Yes. I was afraid of that. Uh, I was really afraid that, that they will ask me. I just was afraid that if I will say no to uh, this offer, when they ask me to do this video, uh, they can put out from the clinic our doctors and they can take this clinic away from them and it will be no chance to help children. After speaking to friends and agonizing over the choice, Chulpan agreed to record the video. She was one of many celebrities to endorse him on film that year, but her video attracted the most attention. She sits in a chair, hands folded in her lap, as she looks straight into the camera. Her eyes look stern, somber, sincere. 
Nothing is more important than the health of our children, she says. And Vladimir Putin has never been indifferent to requests for help. Therefore, I will vote for him, she says. The video provoked many angry responses, both in common threads and in the independent media. Opposition politicians and critics angrily attacked Chulpan for betraying their cause for hers. I was struck at the time by their sanctimonious tone and their eagerness to prove that Hamatova was no saint. Later that year, Putin returned to the Kremlin as president and launched what would become a dominant theme of his presidency, a vociferous anti-Western campaign. As part of this, he brought in legislation that banned American people from adopting Russian children. Like most liberals, Chulpan was horrified by the new law. She knew of at least 180 orphans, many of them with disabilities, who had already met their prospective parents, children who were about to be denied the chance of a family because of some geopolitical play. Collateral damage. So, she spoke out against the law in public, and then got a personal invitation to come and see Putin. It had to be just her, she was told, no activists or lawyers. The next day, she was driven to Putin's residence near Moscow. When she was brought into the room, the president didn't even say hello. You've been writing letters about me, he said. No, she replied nervously. I've been writing letters to you. She asked him to make an exception, at least for the orphans who had already met their adoptive parents. He pushed back, directing her to an item on state TV, a propaganda piece claiming that Americans were not to be trusted with the care of Russian children. He was shocked to find out she hadn't seen it, because she didn't have a television. For him it was like, how, how can I breathe? <laughs> how can I move? How can I live without a TV? She realized that they lived in parallel realities and there was nothing she could do to change his mind. Are we done? He asked her. The conversation was over. And that moment I understood very clearly that the people mean nothing for him. Just nothing. Just Children, people, tragedy, family, all this mean nothing. It's just nothing. He's alone. No love, no дружба, um, no friendship. friendship. No one around you who can tell you the truth. I mean, it's no chance to be a normal person. Hi, I'm Shashank Joshi, The Economist's defense editor, and I'd like to tell you about some of the reporting that our team has been doing on the war in Ukraine, the technology of the conflict, the strategy of both sides, and of course, the fighting on the battlefield. 
Most recently, we've been looking at how Ukraine is not just batting away Russian attacks around the eastern city of Bakhmut, but is also getting ready for a big counteroffensive of its own. We've written on how Western arms are flooding into the country at a higher rate than at any time in the war so far. And the stakes really couldn't be higher. If Ukraine is able to break through Russian defences and tear off another chunk of Russian-occupied territory, that would completely change the narrative of this conflict. And it would put Ukraine in the strongest possible position for negotiations that might follow. As we cover this, Arkady and I are constantly talking to senior officials, civilian leaders, military officers in North America, in Europe, and of course in Ukraine itself, to ensure that our coverage is balanced, is comprehensive, and we hope is unparalleled. If you already subscribe to The Economist, thank you so much you make all of that possible. Otherwise, for access to all of our journalism and to join exclusive events with Arkady, me, and others on our team, please visit economist.com slash Moscow Offer. That's economist.com slash Moscow Offer. The link is in the notes for this podcast. The USSR in the mid-1980s was a grey and listless place. Few cared or believed in the party propaganda. Even fewer harboured any hope for change. Cynicism was one way of getting through. Alcohol was another. And it was an especially grey place if you were young, talented, lived in the provinces and had dreams of something brighter. The stage. Always the people from the school, teachers and director, said to me, don't be special, don't be special, you are just ordinary person. And uh, my mother, she also always said to me, please don't be so, so strange, you should be normal. And I told her, no, please, mom, I don't want to be a great person, I want to be very... Um, bright person and mama said no this is the wrong idea you are a gray person gray like a mouse this might have been Chilpan's fate a bright young woman dreaming of color but forced to live in monochrome and then like a miracle everything changed Mikhail Gorbachev became General Secretary of the Communist Party in 1985, when Chulpan was nine years old. Over the following six years, the country was transformed. The lies and the threat of repression ebbed away. And in 1991, so did the Soviet Union. I was a theatre student in Moscow at the time, at the same school that Chulpan went to a few years later. I remember the sound and the colour of this era vividly. The country was opening up, letting in fresh air and driving out the smell of mothballs. There was an explosion of culture. New films, new music, new theatre. For Chulpan, it was all thanks to one man. Gorbachev gave me this colourful 
world around and made me the person, I mean, if I want to jump, I can jump. If I want to be higher, I can be higher than all society around me. And for me, it doesn't matter what said my school, what will say my uh, teacher or director of the school. He gave me uh, this opportunity to be myself. Chilpan took her opportunity and ran with it. By her early 20s, she was acting in films and being featured on a hip TV show called Zgled, which was a beacon of Gorbachev's new era. Soon, her name will be known to everyone, its presenter said. He was right. Chilpan became famous. And she wanted to do something useful with her fame. So she began her charity work. In the process of hunting for wealthy donors, she managed to get a meeting with a man who changed her life. Mikhail Gorbachev. And we met. And I asked him, please give me money. And he said, I don't have money. And I was really very angry because in my idea, he's Gorbachev, ex-president, and of course he has the money. And then he started to explain to me that he has no money, but he makes also fundraising. He asks rich people to help his foundation. And he said, so you're famous. Let's do it. One of the most striking things about Gorbachev's departure from the Kremlin in 91 was that he left without enriching himself. No mansions in the south of France, no Swiss bank accounts, no shell companies. In fact, as he once told me, it's what made it easy for him to leave. Unlike Putin, he had nothing to hide and nothing to protect. In order to make a living and to fund his charitable foundation, he took on the kind of work that former prime ministers and presidents often do in the West. He gave talks on the lecture circuit. He published books about his time in office. Famously, he even appeared in an advert for Pizza Hut. The ad was widely mocked, both by the Kremlin and in the national press, and was never shown on TV in Russia. But for Chulpan... It was to Gorbachev's credit that he chose to make a living out in the open. For me, he's a hero because he said, listen, this is my life. I need the money. I spent all my life for you, for the country. Gorbachev was born in the south of the country to a peasant family of Russian and Ukrainian heritage. Like so many others, his grandfather had been tortured by Stalin's security services. And before he discovered his appetite for politics, Gorbachev had worked the land with his father. He even won a state prize, the Order of the Red Banner of Labor, for a record-breaking harvest on the collective farm. Chulpan also came from a modest background and paid for her first acting classes by working in a confectionery factory. Perhaps because the former leader recognized the kindred spirit in this determined young actress, he offered to help her with her charity. But more than that, the two became friends. 
very close, yes. And that was the happiness of my life, our, our friendship. He was very um, open person without any uh, flaw. I don't know how to say it in English. Uh, without pretense and... Pretense of power or something like this. He was just just very open, normal, warm person. It was really very easy to speak to him, like um, like the ordinary person. The friendship deepened over the years. And knowing him as she did, she could also see that in spite of Gorbachev's charisma, his energy and his appetite for life, he carried a great sadness. It had been there long before they first met, since 1999, when Gorbachev's wife, Raisa, died of leukemia. He told me many, many times that wasn't the real life. There are life, the life without meaning anymore. Okay, he has a foundation, daughters, granddaughters, but uh, something very important, gone. Soviet leaders rarely appeared with their spouses in public, and when they did, the women always kept quiet. But Raisa was different. She was clever, assertive, and a wide reader. And Gorbachev had been devoted to her. In August 1991, Gorbachev and his family were detained and placed under house arrest in Crimea as the KGB led a coup against him. The coup failed and the Gorbachevs returned to Moscow three days later. It was already dark when their plane landed. The cameras captured Gorbachev in a light jacket walking off the plane, his granddaughter wrapped in blankets. He returned to a jubilant Moscow. People who had just defeated the coup were out on the streets, cheering for victory. But Gorbachev didn't appear before the crowd. Instead, he stayed with his wife, who had suffered a stroke during the coup. He was not married to Russia or the Soviet Union, he reflected later. He was married to Raisa. In 2020, this thought inspired a new play, written and staged by the Latvian director Alvis Hermanis and based on Gorbachev's memoirs. Chulpan was cast as Raisa. Another famous actor, Evgeny Mironov, was cast as Mikhail. As part of the preparations, Hermanis and his two actors went to visit Gorbachev to ask him questions about his life. That moment was captured on camera by Vitaly Mansky, a Russian documentary maker in his film Gorbachev Heaven. The director and his two actors sit with Gorbachev around a table. It's impossible not to warm to Gorbachev when you see the footage. He's heading for 90, wearing a roll-neck jumper, his famous birthmark still visible. But it's his eyes that really capture your attention. There is a mischievous sparkle in them as he looks from person to person, telling jokes, anecdotes, singing songs from his childhood. At one point, he tells them about his mother, who sang to him in Ukrainian. And he sings along with Chulpan.
Чулпан asks him about his first kiss with Раиса. Who kissed whom first? He gives her a withering look. Was it inside or on the street? He was in a pond, he tells her. Beyond this meeting, Gorbachev didn't get involved with the production at all. When I asked him about permission to use his name for our show, he said immediately, yes, yeah, I trust you, I trust the director, I trust all of you, and so let's do it. And he never asked me about the play, about our idea. It means a lot. I went to see the play in Moscow. It was the last time I saw Chulpan on stage in Russia. Gorbachev himself had been to see one of the final rehearsals a few weeks earlier. It was not a play about politics. Gorbachev's stint at the helm of the Soviet state was skipped in one line. Those six years went like a day. Instead, the play was about love. In the vision of the director and his actors, Perestroika could not have happened had it not been for Raisa and Gorbachev's love for her. He has been winning her all his life, Alvis Hermanis told me. The production starts with the two actors coming to the front of the stage. Devoid of makeup and speaking in their normal voices, they recount the saddest moment of Gorbachev's life. For this episode, Chulpan has agreed to perform it in English. For the first 10 days in hospital, Gorbachev didn't once leave his wife's side. Neither of them could sleep at night. In response to her complaints of pain, the doctors asked Raisa what could soothe her and give her strength. She answered that she was very inspired by her husband's visits. In their conversations, they traveled back in time, remembering their first meeting at the Moscow State University. She asked if he remembered their first kiss. Give me a hand. Hold me tight. We still have lots of time. On the night of 20 September, Two days before the planned operation and five days before the 46th wedding anniversary, Mikhail and Irina stood at Raisa Maximovna's bedside. She was in coma. Don't go away, Zaharka. Gorbachev pleaded, calling her what he often called her at home. Do you hear me? He took her hand, hoping she would react somehow, squeeze his hand, but there was no response. She was dead. On the 30th of August last year, nearly a quarter of a century after losing Raisa, Mikhail Gorbachev died. He was 91. A few days later, he was buried in Moscow's Novodevichy Cemetery, next to his wife. Vladimir Putin did not attend the funeral. He said he was too busy. In the pantheon of Russian leaders, Gorbachev is an oddity. 
A man whose greatness is measured not by the number of lives he sacrificed for the cause, but by the number of lives he improved. You could put a pin at almost any point in Russian history and come up with a hundred reasons to be gloomy about the trajectory of the country. And yet, in the mid-1980s, this stocky former combine harvester operator, a decent and humane man, blessed with a loving marriage and an aversion to violence, somehow emerges from the system and changes everything. It seems like a miracle, but it wasn't. Because politicians, however remarkable they are as people, can only plant seeds. In order for real change to happen, the soil has to be fertile enough for these seeds to take hold and to grow. Gorbachev came to power in a moment when his country was aching for change. The land was ready for him. For the remainder of this series, I want to sample the soil now, among exiles and inside Russia. Putin has worked hard to strip and poison it, and the chances for peaceful change are slimmer now than they were in Gorbachev's time. But there are faint signs of hope. Russia is living inside this propaganda bubble, and if I can do something to try to break it, I have to do it. I have to bring the truth about this war back to Russia. There are people here who understand that they may be arrested and go to prison. And some people say, what's the point of it? What do you change? But time will pass, and later on we'll see if that brought difference or not. From the very beginning, I knew that a lot of people in Russia don't support this war. But at the same time, I didn't expect that so many people are ready to put themselves in real danger just to do something. Next year in Moscow, we'll return in a fortnight. This series is produced by Sam Colbert, Pete Norton and Ksenia Barakovska, with help from Lika Kremer and Liba Liba Studios. Additional production and development is by Sandra Shmueli. Our sound design is by Weidon Lin, with original music by Darren Ang. Our executive producer is John Shields. I'm Arkady Ostrovsky. This is The Economist. <laughs>